So usually, reading scripture or writing sermons, my normal experience is that you you read the scripture, like, or you sit down in your quiet time and you do Bible study, and then you try to think as best as you can of a real life example to, to try to model what you're reading. You read about grace, so you do a Google search for a cool story about grace or a movie clip or something that'll help you understand that better. Like you read uh, Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace who has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And then you go to Google and you try to find like a clip of Bruce Springsteen singing on the Berlin Wall or something, right? This is, this is what you do as a preacher. You do your best to come up with an illustration. This feels kind of like batting practice, right? You, you, over and over, you put a ball on the tee and you hit it and you hit it and you kind of groove your swing so that by the time you get live pitching, you're, you, you're confident in your swing. You know what you're doing. You're prepared and you're able. Well, for the past couple weeks, or really, I guess for the past couple years, but especially for the past couple weeks, it feels like I'm reading scripture really different than that. It feels like I'm reading almost opposite of that, where things are happening, and then I'm having to go back to my resources of scripture, of reading scripture for years with you all and, and with other people. And, and I'm, I'm having to rely on the resources of this, spirit, uh, of this scripture and the resources of the Holy Spirit opening my eyes to it to try to describe what we're seeing and then what we're, what we're to do and what we're able to do. I think this is how scripture is potent and powerful, has an active message that the Spirit is enlivening in us. Uh, I can't help but think how theological these times in which we're living are. That's probably something that other generations have thought too. So instead of struggling for an illustration, it seems that we try to find a posture of repentance so that like some of these friends up here were talking about this training, so that we're open to, to relearning. We're open to having our paradigms broken Maybe they already were broken, but we're open to having them shifted or put away or reformed. We're open now to reading these same words that so many of these words we know by heart. Like there are some parts of this that we don't know by heart, but some parts that we've been reading that scripture since we were kids, but now we, we might understand why they matter, what they mean. It's these times when we read scripture like this that we, we double down on the grace of God shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ because that grace is an unending, vast resource that will allow us to respond in faithfulness, that, that will use our faith and allow us to respond in faithfulness, that will allow us and fund us with kingdom-seeking hope and righteousness. So we read in Philippians 3, and, and we come to this narration from, from Paul, who used to be Saul. As we considered a little last week, he's, he starts talking a little bit about circumcision, and it's really hard for us these days, I think, to, to know what to make out of the circumcision talk, right? And I won't belabor that too much. But in its most basic that idea of circumcision marks out who is a part of God's family. 
Who's included in God's work and who's a part of God's family? It was a surefire way to include a little boy who didn't opt in for anything. It was a surefire way to include him in God's family, like marked him. And if you join God's family later, it was a very costly way to join God's family, I assure you. (laughs) An adult convert would owe a lot more. So now, in Paul's letter, here's the controversy. It's a controversy that that Paul starts to talk about. The previous letter before Philippians was probably Galatians. And Galatians, if you have a a taste for it, is like the blazing hot takes of Paul talking about circumcision. Like he talks about them as like foolish people. Uh, he, He says, as if they were bewitched, as if they were in a trance. Like he doesn't even recognize what they're trying to do here. Or then like the letter probably after Philippians is Romans and Romans is so dense and Romans is kind of Paul's like developed magnum opus, right? Um, and he still talks, even in the second chapter of Romans, he talk, he's talking about circumcision and he's talking about not just circumcising the flesh, but having a heart that used to be stone but is now fully alive and able to respond to what God's doing. And then here in Philippians, we find Paul opposing anyone who says that someone must become Jewish before they become a Christian. That they must become something above and apart from what God is making them. Even though this is probably the exact standpoint that Paul had before he met Jesus, or before he was met by Jesus on the road, before he was thrown off his horse because he was blinded because he met Jesus on a road. This is an about face for Paul. So Paul goes on and he lists kind of his, uh, his credentials for confidence, right? Things that, that made him assured and sure about who he was sure that he was right. Kind of trace in this list. Keep an eye on, on uh, the parts of this list that are like really forward with privilege and, and also things that he's proud of, right? Those are, those are kind of the two things that, that show up in this list, pride and privilege, right? He says, I was circumcised. Again, this isn't anything he did. This is a little bit of a, a mark of privilege. He's from Israel. He's from Benjamin and that that that's a little little side note there that links him to David, which David is is the one. David is the anointed one prior to Jesus being the anointed one. Uh, again, a mark of pride, ancestral pride. It says I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, it means he was pure. He wasn't a convert. He 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 had been tracking this way his whole life. He didn't need to be uh, grafted in later. He says I was a Pharisee. This means that he was kind of a strict theological conservative of his day. Someone who, who knew Torah, who knew the scripture, backward and forward, who could debate well. He says, when it comes to zeal, when it comes to how excited and how vigilantly I'm following, I'm a persecutor of the faith. I'm willing to put skin in the game and to defend my faith. When it comes to zeal, persecutor. And then he says, faultless, when it comes to righteousness according to the law. All these things, marks of pride and marks of privilege. Perhaps, though, 
when, when, we, when we scan this list, we consider that Paul in his, in his previous life, it's easy for us to remember as we're reading that Paul was an apostle. Paul was an evangelist sent to preach the good news. Paul was a pastor. We, we hear these kind words that he says over and over, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice to this congregation of suffering people in Philippi that he's trying to encourage. Remember that he's a parent. Last week we talked about how he calls Timothy his son, uh, which represents the, the closeness of, of that apprenticeship of him guiding him and teaching him in the faith. He calls Epaphroditus my brother. He's able to call us brothers and sisters. And he's a prisoner. He writes this, this letter from prison, which when Dr. Hayes was here, reminded us of, uh, of a whole canon of prison letters from, from MLK or from Mandela or from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He, but we have all of those those somewhat positive pictures of Paul, but might we ever have considered Paul in his previous life, uh, we might have considered him some sort of like nationalistic domestic ter terrorist. Like, have you ever considered that? Like this is what I'm talking about, of reading scripture and having the imagination to, to see uh, what scripture is saying to where we are right now. <laughs> that scripture has room for these things. It's not surprised by these things. These things don't surprise God, but we see Paul not operating in that mode. In fact, he's, he's completely flipping from that mode. Here's a swing in his argument where, where he wants persecuted people. When it comes to zeal, a persecutor for the faith, like we're told in Acts, when Jesus meets him on, on the road, that he was breathing uh, hot words of threat towards those following the way, right? So, but here's a swing in Paul's argument. He says, whatever were gains, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. We hallmark that way too much. Whatever were my gains, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. Do you see how revolutionary that statement is for someone to make? Not only someone that has all the, the benefits of privilege, like things he wasn't responsible for, but that, that buoy him up and make faith easier for him. Things that he couldn't have done even if he wanted to. He, he was marked as a newborn but also the, the pride, things that he could change or, or could, um, things even that he put effort into. He was schooled by Pharisees. He's standing up for purity. All these things, Paul now counts in the loss column. He moves them from the win column to the loss column. You see, Paul's doing some pretty intense, like personal revisionist history here. This goes far beyond, like, uh, when I think of this passage or that statement, what once was my gain, I now count as loss, I think of things like, like pretty serious things and, and, and good narratives for this. Like, I used to be really greedy, but then I met Christ, and, and now I, I count that greed, that lust after money as loss. I used to be addicted to porn, and now I think that's trash, and it doesn't have space in my life, or I used to drink too much and now I can't even put it up to my lips because it repulses me, right? Like the, these are the things, and I think those are important testimonies. Some of those are life-saving testimonies, 
But I think they have to be found inside of this earth-shattering realization that whatever pride or privilege that we've known, it not only gets downgraded, but it gets thrown away. It gets counted as a loss. The word in here later, when he says he counts it as garbage, like that's a little bit of a cleaning up of that word. That's like sewage. That is like literally crap. And the thing about crap is you, you don't keep that around. <laughs> you throw it away. You don't downgrade it. You flush it. That's what Paul's saying about these things that, that were the basis for his identity. These, these things get thrown out. They get left behind and they get re-narrated when he meets and when, when we meet Jesus. Not just the idea of Jesus, but, but when we actually come in contact with Jesus. Not just some Jesus sort of religion that we've grown up with, but, but when we meet Jesus, when the Spirit opens our eyes and our hearts and enables us to meet the crucified and risen Jesus, what once was your greatest asset, your trophy, your benefit, your statue, your monument is now a handicap to be overcome, like a ball in a chain unless you cut it loose. Your privilege and your pride are garbage, is what Paul's saying, and Paul should know. At the, at the very moment that we don't count those things as losses, that we try to hold on to them, they become idols. And let me remind you that God's people have always been against idols. Even as we've been terrible at worshiping idols, we've been against them. Try to talk to Moses about idols, right? He comes down the mountain, and he can't get down the mountain before they've made an idol, even as he's talking with God. Try to talk, about, talk to Elijah about idols. I don't think Elijah would be too accommodating for idols. Try to talk to Peter and Paul about idols, or think about the uh, other people in God's story, about Lot's wife looking back and getting turned into a pillar of salt, where the Israelites, thinking back to Egypt, they can't, they can't help but think about how good the food was in Egypt, even as they were enslaved, even as God wants to provide for them, even as the, their scarcity mindset causes them to keep too much food in it, turns into maggots, right? Why is this important? Because this is what faith is. This is what faith is. It's the collapse of every effort of our own capacity and will. If, if faith is a chair, it's, it's our willingness to just throw our bodies into the chair because we trust that it's going to hold us. This means that in such turbulent times as ours, that Christians of all people were people of faith, whose lives are located outside of anything that we've done, good or bad, or anyone who we've been, that we're called holy ones because we're located in Christ and we share in his life and his death and his resurrection, that we should be the best equipped to handle this sort of disorientation. And if you're not disoriented, you're probably not paying attention, right? But we should be equipped for that. 
This is our wheelhouse. Doesn't mean it feels good, but it means that we have the resources for this. It means that this has become our story. I think there's a slide uh, up there of, of someone. I think we need to hear these stories of people, both, both folks who, um, whose stories we, we haven't heard a whole lot, um, particularly in our country, black Christians, like th this is not a new thing, like the black church has existed for a long time and have been a lot more faithful than most white churches have for a long time. But also, I think it's important for us to highlight the stories of people who uh, resisted even against themselves or their own natural inclinations. Like this is Diedrich Bonhoeffer who was put to death in a Nazi uh, prison camp. I mean, look at him. He looks like he should be a Nazi, right? Like, he was a German. <laughs> he, he was from privilege. He did all these things, and he counted them as loss. And I love this quote. He wrote this from prison. Related to this passage, he says, Disciples live with not only renouncing their own rights, but even renouncing their righteousness. They get no credit themselves for what they do and sacrifice. I think it's right here that Paul and that Bonhoeffer's and, and our autobiographies kind of merge, right? We have plenty of opportunities to be right, to feel righteous. And we're immensely threatened when things could change and that righteousness feels impinged upon. It feels like we're being displaced. What these folks have in common is a recognition that you can be right, but that doesn't even necessarily make you righteous. That's not really how God works. Like, being right doesn't, doesn't matter that much to God. Sure, he wants you to join in and, and, and worship in spirit and in truth, but being right isn't going to get you anything because God needs you to join in his righteousness, which isn't a static thing. It's not something that hardens and calcifies, but it's, it's a mission to join into. It's, uh, when you get down to, to what righteousness is and what it does, is righteousness takes something that was turned over and sets it back up right. That's how God's righteousness works. That's how we join in God's righteousness in this world. I think of this line from a Jewish poet. It says, from the from the place that where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. There's that, that image of, of where we're right is this static place where we, where, where we just trounce down, we tamp down the dirt, and nothing will ever grow there. But God's calling us into this moving righteousness, this righteousness that's, that's going the same way God, when he wants to spread righteousness, he calls a family and he sends his son to go. That's the call. I think that's also why Paul ends this part of his letter with this sort of training, running, striving, climbing movement language, right? Like Paul turned from domestic terrorist to long distance runner, like in the course of like a dozen lines here, right? He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me, pressing on towards the goal. Because righteousness isn't something you acquire, it's not something you shine and put in a trophy case. Righteousness belongs to the God of the universe 
who knows the inner workings of this world so well and is redeeming it, is setting things right and has started that setting right when he sent Jesus and Jesus lived and died and now eternally lives. Right now he's at the right hand of this righteous making God praying for us. This is the movement we're called into. This is also the resistance we'll face in the world, but also in ourselves. We're always going to kind of fight against this. Pressing on is hard work. You get tired. You want to take breaks. You want to stop. You want to camp. You want to build a house because pressing on is hard. But we must resist that. The steady and insidious temptation to strive to be right, to, to stop this movement, to, to kind of dam up and reservoir this, this flow into the world of God's righteousness. We need to resist a temptation to bask in any sort of reflected glory other than God's. That's also from, Stephanie mentioned that book, and there's this phenomenon where we either try to, to put distance between ourselves and the losers, or we try to bask in the reflective glory of the victors. I think both of those are, are, are insidious and wrong unless the glory that we're basking in is God. That's, that's where we boast. That's where we glory. We glory in the one who humbled himself. We join Jesus in the putting this world to rights a work that starts inside of each of us and, and expands through us together. This is something that you you haven't heard. <laughs> please please ask someone. Please grab someone and say like I don't I didn't know about this. I thought I thought Jesus and church and Christianity was about being right or about getting right and it's really about being put right. It's about it's it's about grabbing hold of that which has grabbed hold of you. And if that hasn't happened for you, it actually already has and and let me help you make that a reality. Let me help you walk in that. Come see me or come see someone else and and, and we'll talk about that. And and normally the next step from that is to is to get baptized because that says that's the ultimate like visual action cue that I'm dying. <laughs> And I need God to raise me up into this new life that won't die. You got that? Like, that's, that's how this works. That's the logic for this kind of living. Will you guys pray with me? Father, I, I thank you for these words. We thank you for, for 3D, um, real life, living color illustrations of this word walking in front of us. And, and we, we thank you that... that You've given us more than enough to participate in your righteous work in this world. Father, make us um, brave enough to empty because um, it takes a lot of courage to start to tip over that jar and, and start to see stuff fall out of it and not know if there's going to be anything left uh, once it's gone. But we trust in you to, to fill us. We trust in you to raise us to new life the only life worth living. Life in Jesus, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.